no my heart am I, my name is Jeremy and this is the Maxim Institute podcast. Every year as part of my job as comms manager here, I get to edit Flint and Steel magazine, an annual collection of feature essays, articles, photography and illustrations that revolve around a particular theme. In December 2019, I chose the theme of recovery, repair and reconciliation. And then throughout the course of assembling the content of the magazine this year, I've often thought to myself, how on earth did I pick that one? One of the first articles I commissioned for Volume 7 was Shelley Neithling's article, Home Again. Shelley has long had an interest in child development, and she wrote her article looking at foster care in New Zealand, what can be done for kids from hard places. She discovered that in New Zealand there are approximately 6,000 children who have been removed from unsafe homes and placed in foster care. Oranga Tamariki's most recent findings reveal that 58% of children in care will not go on to obtain NCA Level 2, and 45% of them will leave school without any NCA qualifications at all, and 20% of them will have been involved with youth justice processes by the age of 19. Shelley poses the question, if the aim of removing children from dangerous home environments is to protect, nurture, and empower them, then what are we missing? And how can the traumatic experiences of these children's lives be addressed and repaired? One of the primary interviewees for Shelley's article is Ursula Alisara. She's the CEO of Immerse, a non-profit foster care agency that trains and supports foster parents to use the trust-based relational intervention model when providing a home for kids from hard places. For this month's podcast, I sat down with Ursula in her offices on the North Shore of Auckland and talked about her life, the realities of foster care in New Zealand, and what it takes to repair trauma in the lives of kids from hard places. Thanks for joining me, Ursula. It's um, lovely to be here in your beautiful offices, actually, with the Pahutakawa trees outside. I wondered if you could just start us off maybe by telling us a bit about the story of how you became aware of foster care and how you got into um, being a foster carer yourself and then and, and then the story of Immerse more generally. Mm-hmm. So my parents divorced when we were quite young and my mother ran... Um, a back-to-work program for troubled teens, basically, and ended up fostering a number of teenagers in my uh, middle childhood years. So I guess if you want to... My first taste of foster care was actually there as having foster siblings. Um, And that experience was a a positive one for us and nothing, you know, no harm came to any of us because of that, um, which sometimes can be the case. (laughs) Um, And then... Uh, I was always very maternal. I just would uh, raise baby lambs, baby possums, baby rats. (laughs) Possums, my goodness. (laughs) Um, And, you know, know, I had a reasonable success rate with with nurturing little things. Uh, And so I guess that was, you know, a highly maternal personality. And then went on to... um, think that I would work in an orphanage overseas when I grew up or um, you know do something of that nature or definitely at the time there was lots of inter-country adoption with South America and New Zealand and like a few things you know countries like that so always had a heart for it Um, and was quite um, surprised by how easily I had three children <laughs> but in between our first and second child we actually did an inter-country adoption application because it was still a big thing on my heart um, and then a bit later on before our third child was born we uh, took a whānau placement in our extended family for three little ones under 10 
Um, and so we had five kitties, 5.5 kitties in our um, late 20s and early 30s. Uh, and that was, so we were whānau caregivers then. And then after our third child was born, uh, he, he was born with a very severe disability. So we took about three years off fostering when he was little because we spent the majority of that time in starship. Mm. Um, and then went back into non-kin foster care um, when he was three and had been doing pretty much non-kin care ever since. Mm. So just been something that I've always been pulled very strongly towards. Yeah. yeah. For those who are listening who might not sort of get the difference between whānau placement and non-kin fostering, fundamentally what is that difference and kind of how does it play out in the sort of day-to-day or in terms of the overall structure of what you're doing? Yeah, it's always the first, you know, priority for Oranga Tamariki or what was child, youth and family at that time to find extended family members or, or as close, in our case, it was close family members to step in first. Uh, it meant back then, and less so now, very um, little screening, um, which has been an issue historically for our kiddies. Um, so you, you know, because we knew the children and they knew us and we were, you know, close family and, and safe, you know, people for want of a better word, um, they came straight to us. There was mm. no kind of screening it and then you uh, I often say that I think whānau caregiving is the hardest right because you have um, lots of grandparents raising grandchildren now as well um, but aunties and uncles and extended family doing that but you so you have to navigate your relationship with the adults involved who are your family members Mm. and prioritize you're going to have an ongoing relationship with them in the future presumably yeah (laughs) That is definitely the hope. So I often say it's one of the trickiest because there's an added dynamic that has to be brought into that mix and Mm. it can make the job at hand harder Mm. because you have split loyalties, you have, you know, you've got other issues going on that you, and and family members can be pulled in different directions. Right. So you, you know, it's quite a tricky space. Um, And so I really do feel for grandparents, particularly raising grandkids, et cetera, and that it is really hard. So non-kin is where they're not related to you. So Mm. you've gone through usually a much more stringent assessment and um, preparation process, and then you will be down for hopefully a, um, a logical age and gender and things that match well with your family. And then you, if children fit that category, you would get called to say, hey, you know, we've got um, little Johnny and this is the situation and um, are you guys available to for this amount of time? You mm. never know, pretty much. You know, a day can be four years and six months could be finished by the weekend. It depends because right. the goal is always to find whānau and if they are found, then generally mm. that, you know, that's the, the goal for, for the organize well, for OT now anyway. Yeah, yeah. And so... Um, after after being a foster parent yourself mm. um, for quite some time, and I, I guess also, um, what was the conversation like with your husband as well? I mean, was this something he was always keen on as well, or was that something that you guys had ongoing conversations about? Uh, I wouldn't have um, I wouldn't have probably married him if that wasn't an option. Right. So I was pretty. I knew from a very young age that my life would have children not born to me in it. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know. So that was quite a. Um, strong for me 
So I I don't remember there being a heck of a lot of conversation, but then we met at 16 and 19. So you're quite <laughs> idealistic and, you know, I think you can, can manage it all at that age. So I don't think there was a whole lot of too much pre-thought or pre-work done, but um, the fact that he was absolutely fine to do the inter-country application between our first and second child, mm. um, you know, showed that he was absolutely open to, to doing, you know, doing that. So... Mm. Yeah. yeah, and he's Samoan, so the Samoan um, culture is very uh, wide village family. Uh, you're not your nuclear family is not um, the same as what we perceive in mm. Western culture to be. It's so not such an exclusive space, almost. Yeah, and it's very common for um, you know aunties and uncles and grandparents have a lot to do with children are very much raised in a village. And so that, I mm. guess, is not a really big foreign concept. Yeah. So I, I think that probably made it a lot easier for him. So from being a foster parent yourself, how did that then translate into the work that you're doing now? And, and kind of what, what process did you go through to get to you know where you're sitting now in the immerse offices? I think I've always, I've always been a, a natural learner. And so I would... I was quite inquiry-driven as to the behaviours that I would see with different children coming into our home and be asking the bigger question, why, what's going on here? You know, what's really going on here? Not, you know, this child has A, B, C and D type behaviours, but what is really going on here? And um, being, I think, naturally maternal and having a, a, a natural way with children I would respond to things intuitively and um, get some really incredible, and, and George too, get some really incredible results with children where people were like, how, particularly the authority figures mm. were, had one child come to us, she was, um, she was 12, um, had been in and out of our care since her and her siblings were eight, um, and my social worker at the time said, I'm not even, and it was through a chain of random events that I knew that she, you know, was back in the care system and desperately needed somewhere to land. Uh, and my social worker said, I am absolutely not accepting this referral on your behalf until you read the two inch file on my desk. And I was like, yeah, yeah, file smiles, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, she said, I'm bringing it over. And when you've both read it, we'll have another conversation. Mm. And so children can look terrible on paper, mm. but when you've got a relationship with them that was built in, in this case, the first experience of us as a family was all summer with us. And so it was right. camping and non-threatening environments and fun and so, you know, play disarms fear. And so now when I look back, I can see the language and the science and all that. But at the time, it's just intuition. It's like, this is what kids need. This is what we're going to do, you know, this. So out of that, I wrote um, I wrote the uh, only book that I know of in New Zealand on foster care, which was Foster Care Voices from the Frontline, taking, um, I guess, children that had we had worked with personally that had backgrounds of various types of abuse and neglect, reflecting on our response and then putting that into a book-type format that would be easy to read for foster parents to just have a few more tools. Mm. So I wrote that book and released it in 2015. 
at the time that the Minister for National was Anne Tolley for the Minister for Children, and she was in the middle of the overhaul, the final overhaul, that overhaul Child, Youth and Family, which is now Oranga Tamariki, the new Ministry for Children. So I released that book at the same conference we were speaking to at the same conference, and um, I don't remember if I was right after her or a little while, but anyway, a very helpful um, member of my team who's now on my team here made sure they shoved a book into her hand as she was leaving and was selling the books at the conference as well. Um, and she was getting straight on a flight. You know, ministers don't stand around to watch other people <laughs> speak. They do what they need to do and leave. Um, and then that was one week. The next week I had an, um, an order for seven more books to go to Parliament. And I found out from the Minister of Youth Justice about six months or a year later when I met him in a different space at the time. He said, oh, I know who you are. <laughs> I had to read your book before I was allowed to admit my final recommendations for what would become the new ministry. Oh, wow. Because I, I guess I was the only space where the voice of the caregiver and the um, and the intuitive strategies around what happens for kiddies were concisely in one space. Mm. The book also has um, the voice of a care experience person, which is Naila, who's in you know your magazine, and we were friends, associates even back then. And um, it also has the voice of um, a social worker and the voice of one of our adult children now, who was, I think, 17 at the time when she wrote her chapter about what it's been like to be, at that stage, the sibling of 40-plus children. Mm. Um, and so she writes from, from her perspective there as well. So it, it, I guess I tried to gather as many voices for that to be in one space. Yeah. What do you think is different about what you're saying in that book? to what they might have heard from sort of official sources? I don't know, because I'm not privy to the other things that they might have been forced to read. <laughs> um, but I think it's just a really raw but common sense, gentle um, reality check, I suppose, of what it, what these kitties go through more than... It's not the book is not really about the plight of the foster parent, so to mm. speak. It's more about I wrote it with the intention of more caregivers need to see when children have sexualized behaviors, the worst thing you can do is shame them. Mm. You know, or if children are angry, it's because they're really sad. They just anger is a more copable emotion when you're vulnerable mm. than to be sad. Mm. So the, it was more about, you know, you know, please don't try to fix the behaviour without fixing the need. And so that was that was the I guess the the premise that I wrote. It wasn't to inform government; that mm. it was just a byproduct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But kind of like an an interpretation of what you had seen, um, and and what the different people contributing to the book had seen over the over the years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what it feels like to be in that space because you don't. It's not something, especially. 10 years ago, let's say, when we've, we've been doing it for 18, um, there was no information. It's kind of like, oh, you've got to, you know, you just parent the way that you have always parented. Mm. But you realise pretty quickly that you're not going to get um, the outcome that you're hoping for if that's the approach that you take. Because mm. our kids are defended against things that are punitive because, you know, enough people have dealt with them punitively for that to have really little effect. Yeah. Yeah, so they've already had people yell at them. They've already had people take things away from them. To they've try already lost everything. Yeah, you know, when you've lost everything, you've got really nothing left to lose. Hmm. 
in the magazine, uh, in the article that Shelley wrote, she has a quote from you that says, the reality is that foster children have experienced complex developmental trauma. Just loving them and putting a roof over their heads is not going to be enough to heal them. Um, that's a pretty confronting quote um, and obviously comes from <laughs> a lot of experience and clinical research as well that you've done and you've, you've seen work out. So why is that like wh what's going on there because i think that a lot of people would just say love is enough right like mm. that that uh the human heart the soul responds you know there's something um deep in our humanity and and kind of i guess especially when there's a movie uh that yeah. that, that shows adoption or foster care or you know and the kids are really difficult and the parents don't understand and then it's just in the end it's just love and it's understanding that kind of paves the way for for a relationship to blossom. What stands in the way of that? Yeah, it's complex, <laughs> hence its name. Um, complex developmental trauma is, uh, Bessel van der Kolk does a great, and I know that, you, you know, Shelley's quoted some of his work in the article as well. Um, and it's a, it, I, I can't verbatim quote it, although I teach it all the time. But basically it's the experience of multiple chronic developmentally adverse experience where the young person has had no ability to put an end to it themselves so they are essentially powerless and the result is often not always their trajectory of development or we think about our normal trajectory of development gets arrested at a point by the by trauma and particularly if it's chronic ongoing at the hands of people who you should be able to know and trust etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm that has a profound effect on the developing brain for kids. Um, and so the downstairs brain, or what we call the downstairs brain, Dan Seagal talks you know, a lot about this upstairs brain and downstairs brain. It's a great analogy if you, you take your hand and you put your thumb across the palm of your hand and you say, well, this is our downstairs brain. This is where we, our autonomic function, this we think of our arm as our brain stem, so our autom autonomic system, such as our heart rate, our temperature, our breathing, our endocrine systems all the things we do all day every day without, without thinking, thinking. Yeah. then all that's kind of the very primitive but that feeds into the limbic brain the downstairs brain which is our emotional regulation um, it's our fight flight freeze center it's the part of it's our some people call it the reptilian brain it's it's really these two brains together have two main functions one to keep us alive make sure we survive and the second one is to reproduce so that's really its two functions. If things happen that are highly stressful, this brain codes it really well because this brain's job is to keep us alive. When we take um, normal development and we say, this needs a bit of stress, you know, like you don't grow resilience without stress. So you need a bit of stress. You need a bit of that sort of triggering a fight, flight, freeze, and then mm. an adult calms you and you need that triggering and an adult mm. calms you and that happens thousands and thousands and thousands to of times. To give time. you some practice. To give you practice. Yeah. And it starts with, I'm a newborn and I'm hungry, I cry, someone feeds me. It starts right back there and it goes all the way to, I'm 15 years old and you know my best friends let me down and an adult still calms me. So it's a you know, lifelong process. And I, I say it never stops. Other regulation never stops. Mm. So we have this, but over that brain lays our cortical brain. And the cortical brain is our executive functioning, our personality, our higher thinking, our processing. Um, and so we think about our kids who have come from really hard places. This downstairs area has coded well 
trauma and coded well how to keep me safe. And some of those strategies are maladaptive. Right. Right. They would look maladaptive to us, but they've worked. Yeah. So they've worked for the function that they needed to work for, which was a sort of that like like a really base function of like I was safe or I got to a safe place or I managed to minimize the adult behavior that was scary to me. That's right. Yeah. By doing this, what we would sometimes see bizarre, extreme, whatever mm. thing, but it worked. Even like I was able to get food in the middle of the night and hide it so that I didn't go hungry the next day or something like that. 100%. Because, yeah. A hundred percent. Or I found by by kicking and screaming and hurting somebody that diverted from some other major thing that might have gone down. Mm. So that's, these are these things that look like bad behavior or look like strange behavior, but they're actually adaptive ways to keep you alive. When this fight, flight, freeze center of our brain, um, and we all will have a default um some of us know in a really stressful situation we just freeze. Like in a, it has to be something that takes you by surprise. It is intense. It's not just a uncomfortable. It's got to be that real like, I did not see that coming. It really, you know. And we'll have if you freeze, there's either a, a, a just like a literally freeze like a person, or you um, another freeze coping strategy is actually going to sleep. Oh right. So you will find people who when their their system is overwhelmed they check out by actually just going to sleep mm. um, then you've got your flight which is to run away to get away as fast as you can uh, in children that's actually using distractive um, strategies um, changing the subject uh, so you learn how to see those things in kiddies and then the fight is really easy to pick you know you're likely to punch in the face I say all that to say the job of um approaching kids behavior in the right way is so that when this area is triggered for them the downstairs the downstairs area. the fight flight freeze is triggered for them the way that we come at that is going to determine how much of the upstairs brain we're going to bring online and the more practice we give them at accessing that the stronger this pathway goes mm. why is that important it's important because a huge disproportion of our kitties end up behind bars. Why do they end up behind bars? Because you did this. I felt like punching you in the face because I'm a fight. I did it. Mm. Because I didn't have enough pathways to go, okay, you've done this thing or I feel triggered. I'm going to punch you in the face. Mm. And there's not enough processing to go, probably not a good idea this might happen, that might happen. And with us, those of us that have really high executive functioning, we'll go all the way to, and then when we apply for the job that we want, we won't be able to get that. And we da 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 mm. see that the thinking yep. takes us right down the road of. Because you can go long term, but when you don't have that connection between the downstairs and upstairs brain, you don't have the ability as much to, to think long term or to, or to think through the natural consequences and to be guided by that sort of thing. So essentially override it. So it's its job is to react mm. and then the upstairs brain's job is to override it and give it some logic and think it through and all those kind of things. Um, so that's kind of the scenario that I will always teach is why is this important? Because we want young people and adults who can access that and reason through their response. Their response is not wrong because it's kept them alive it's done its job, but it's no longer helpful mm. when they grow up. So when 
did you sort of start, I mean, obviously you wrote the book and then you had these sorts of questions of how do we do this better? Mm. Uh, and you were looking for, I mean, what were you looking for and, and kind of where did that journey take you? Yes, I was uh, probably about almost 10 years ago, Dr. Bruce Perry, who is the founder of Child Trauma Academy in, in I think it's Canada, um, and he's a neuroscientist, he's a psychologist, he's a psychiatrist, he's, you know, incredibly, um, incredibly intelligent man, done plenty of research on traumatised kids. He came down to New Zealand and was offering a full day workshop and my agency that I was fostering with at the time put it out to everybody and I snapped it up because I was like, he must have something I you know, want to know. Um, and I would say for me, it was sitting in that whole day with Dr. Bruce Perry, who's hilariously funny, five children as well as all the things he does, um, and has done some incredible work you know, in his in his work and he's developed another model which, you know, is a trauma based model too, which is fantastic. Um it was part way through that that day, P D day with him, where he talked about research um with monkeys around addiction and relationship. And the short story is basically this research showed that um monkeys who had been clinically um driven to be cocaine addicts but starved of relationship would actually choose the lever that would give them access to other monkeys over the drug even after they were addicts because human well what we interpreted that to relationship is more powerful than a drug we actually and we are primates similar in that we we the change agent for everything is relationship and I remember sitting there thinking I knew that like but to have neuroscience come to the table and say, this is what we know now. Mm. And he wrote the book, Love Wins. He wrote the book, The Boy Raised as a Dog. Um, anyone interested in understanding trauma, those are great books to read. Um, the Whole Brain Child is Daniel Seagal. So he talks about the downstairs, upstairs brain. The, that's another great book. So these were all just coming onto the market and the world of caregiving was only just starting to turn to a trauma model thanks to these guys that are doing this incredible work and research. Um, so that was a light bulb moment for me, and there was another couple of things in that seminar. He was talking about neuroplasticity. Well, that's something we all kind of bandy around now. We know our brain's neuroplastic. It changes throughout our entire life now, we know, whereas we thought it was developed and set pretty much by seven, and we know that's not true. And so we know it's an incredible machine that will make workarounds. It will it will come up with strategies that work for it, and it will prune things that it doesn't work for it. And so we, so I was like, oh, I kind of feel like that's what I was trying to say as well, you know. And so it just it just gave me such hope that it's never too late. It's never too late for our mm -hmm. kids. And in the world of care, before that, it was kind of like, and even the brain development common belief was that a, you know show me a child with a seven and I'll show you the adult, you know. And actually, I I just didn't feel like that was true. Mm -hmm. So. And, I, and also out of my own life experience, I, I guess I've, I had a real sense that that's not true. I had my own um, plenty of um, adverse childhood experiences myself. So uh, the, um, the ACE study, which is the adverse childhood experience, gives you a set of questions and I've scored pretty much seven out of 10. Mm. So according to that, I will have a 20 year shortened lifespan if you don't do the work on the adverse experiences. So 
I kind of all the stuff came and kind of a, a, it came on top of on top of on top of and then when we were looking at um, starting an agency that might have this flavor that's what led us on the pathway to finding an evidence-based practice but so that's hopefully <laughs> a little bit of the, the journey yeah and so I mean um and so what did you end up finding? I mean, and, and sort of at the core of Immerse, what was different about the way that you try to do things here to say what you experienced when you first became a foster parent? Yeah, day and night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, first, first of all, there was a small group of us who were on the same page and, um, and we're really keen to see something like this launch. Is this a, a group of foster parents? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and a social worker um, as well who had worked a long time in foster care too. So there was a, a small group of us and, and, and other people based here in New Zealand too who um, were really keen to see something like this get off the ground. And at the time, I would say we were, we were coming to the table with something very unique because, like I said, it takes a while for the – the science and and um, the trauma, what we call trauma informed practice, now to catch up with mainstream. So we were bringing that very early to the table and saying we want this is what we want. And there's Daniel Segal and there's Dr. Bruce Perry and etc. But what we learned very quickly was what government at that time were looking for was evidence based practice. Right. So that sent us on this worldwide search for well, what is out there that's evidence based for our kitties. And we were very fortunate to find trust-based relational intervention. Um, it is, comes out of Texas um, Christian University. And the whole research for that for this model, which we call TBRI, was founded in inter-country adopted, adopted in foster care. Mm. So there was uh, the research was all based on that cohort, which is perfect for the work that we do, based in attachment, based in neuroscience. And so... Um, they were very generous with us, gave the, um, myself and, and one of the other original co-founders scholarships to to become the first practitioners here in New Zealand. Uh, and so we did our study here and then flew up to the States and, and graduated, which was awesome. Um, and so that that's the how we got the evidence-based practice, how we got the service, that's a really long <laughs> process. It's a highly guarded space. You know, we're talking about level one service delivery under a section 396, which is the overnight unsupervised access to very vulnerable young people. Mm. And so the process of policies and procedures and how will we practice and, and right, you know, to the nuts and bolts of anything, this was a massive piece of work. Having a therapeutic evidence-based framework definitely helped build the bones and and the structure of what we do Mm. but there's still no matter whether you had that or not there's still a massive piece of work to get the bones and structure in place (laughs) and so what do you do like i mean you know for people who don't know anything about immerse um what what does immerse do so we recruit publicly a foster parents or and that can be um single people or couples or people just living in relationships who want to offer their home as a safe place for kitties to come to. We then have to put them through, obviously, very extensive screening and vetting processes. We additionally train them in the therapeutic model, which is one of the things that set us apart. 
Um, so they are TBRI trained caregivers. We then, uh, you know, park them on our dashboard of available homes. And then daily, it's when we first started out, I would get maybe two or three emails a day from the placements team with kitties that need to be taken into care or need to be moved in care. And we look at our dashboard to say, do we have a suitable match for this child? And then if we do, we will start those conversations between Oranga Tamariki and our caregivers. Mm -hmm. And then we support the transition into their home. And then the whole time that the children are with them, we wrap a wraparound service that we call Embrace around the child and the family. And it's a needs assessment process that's based in... um, the 12 life domains, which also fall into the Māori wellbeing framework of Tafari Tapafa, so looking at, um, you know, physical, spiritual, um, relational, and and um, yeah, mental health. So we we do a wraparound process with our kids, and we meet needs, and we those, and of course that never stops because as one needs met, there's another need. They grow, they change, they mm. have all these things. Um, we also run. A Saturday program for all of our kids in care aged over four. So between at the moment we've got a service that we run every second Saturday between four and fourteen is mm-hmm. our age group, and we recruit volunteers to be buddies for kids in that program. So those people, it's a great option for people who have a real heart for this pro, you know, this work but can't offer full time foster care. Lots of, um, not lots, but a few of our foster parents have come through that pathway if they're a little bit nervous about, I'm not sure if I could do this, so they start in the Saturday program. That gives our foster parents respite, brings our siblings back together if Mm. they've been separated. Um, And more recently, we have um, opened our mum and baby homes. So we have now foster parents who take in mum and baby, newborn, and we work with them in TBRI as well, in a trauma-based response, and we are seeing incredible results from um, the homes that we've got now where mum and baby are. We, our job is to facilitate attachment. Mm. So is that, I mean, I've never heard of that before. Yeah, is that new. Like, <laughs> where does that, because that, that sounds amazing, because, I mean, the whole understanding of attachment is that obviously any time that you take a child away from its mother, um, even if you, even if it's straight away, you know, like um, there's still, you know, this growing period in the womb of, of nine months of attachment that's that's happened just, you know, by virtue of being mm. part of the same body. Mm. Um, and then, and then so anytime that any disattachment happens, there is a form of trauma. Absolutely. Um, and so where did that idea for mum and baby placements come from? And is it, I mean, uh, is it essentially to help uh, almost be like a kind of a, a grandparent figure or... What's the... What's yeah, the? Uh, it's always... George and I actually did this just... Um, what's the right word? Fell into it, I suppose, when we were young. Uh, we After our first child was born uh, in the church that we were attending at the time, an extended family member was living in a... In a extended family member of a church member um, was living in a domestic violence relationship, very, uh, you know, reasonably bad one and she was not from Auckland and her the child that she had was only hers and so um, I think the situation got quite serious at one point and I wrote about this in, in my book as well and she fled and she said she was just driving around and driving around, she didn't know where to go and she just thought, 
I'll just go to Ursula and George's house because she, and she even admits to this day, she goes, I didn't actually even like you, but, <laughs> <laughs> but she said, I knew I'd be safe. Oh, wow. And so she just, they just turned up on our doorstep and we were like, yeah, of course, come in. And, you know, George just by, um, stereotyping, I guess would be one of the better word. He does look like a safe person to stand behind. Um, <laughs> and, and although you should really be more scared of me, <laughs> um, that, that started a process and we just let her sort of come and go because anyone that works in this, cause this is addiction. Being, you can be addicted to the wrong relationships. You can be addicted to substances. You can be addicted, you know, it's addicted to all sorts of things. And when, fam, you know, violence or wrong relationships is another type of addiction. So we let her sort of come and go over the period in our home of about 18 months. And, um, and then eventually she just left and she ended up marrying a cop. <laughs> another good person to stand behind. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and has had two or three kiddies, got a career, um, lives overseas now, and even still on our anniversary or different things, she will send us a message saying mm. that it wasn't until she lived, so immersed, which is the, where it comes from, was immersed in the environment where this, oh, this is how you do relationship. Mm. This is norm. Like, this is not just on TV. Yeah, yeah. Until the biology of your body feels what that's like, it doesn't have an internal framework. Mm. And she, so she will say the same that she, and I mean, she's, so say that to say it was always what, um, where we wanted to go, how we were going to get there, I had no idea. But now with all of the media around uplifting newborns and, um, and we know it's damaging, you know, mm. to young people, and we know that in some instances with the right supports it could have a very different outcome mm. so we just took a plunge just designed something that's um again inside of you got to inside of the evidence base you have to work with um older people that are still traumatized young people mm. yeah but they now got a responsibility and so it's really a double piece of work mm. but the outcomes are far better if we can get this to really um, work and we like I said we're seeing incredible results with that so we really want to uh, if you ask me what my favorite part will be to grow it will be this service yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, just brass tacks practically a kid comes into your home what's going to be the difference based on whether or not you've had the training in TBRI versus not like, I mean, what, what, what's the, mm. what's the thing that you hope comes from a foster parent, um, their intuition, their knowledge, their relation, their relating to the child, the kind of environment that they create, what's different about that? Mm. I guess it makes me want to circle back to one of the first things you said, which was, you know, lo quoting me actually, that love and a roof over their head's not enough. The first ingredient has to be love. I mean, you have to want to see this young person succeed. You have to feel you know you have to feel something for them because we are not thinking beings like I said that feel we are downstairs feeling beings that learn to think mm. and so we will pick up from each other whether we like each other or not and particularly kiddies will pick up super sensitively if they're from a hard place whether mm. they are wanted or liked or and best of all loved 
So that does have to be the baseline. But a lot of parenting strategies that work fine for children who don't have complex developmental trauma, it fixes most problems. We know removing the iPhone for two days might remind the young person that uh, they needed to make sure that their chores of the dishwasher and the something, whatever that is, has been achieved, right? Mm. It's It's a reminder that hurts a little bit but they will bounce back from it and everyone will carry on and life will be okay because that's a cognitive process because that's a cognitive process a child from a hard place does not have that same ability to process so therefore that removal is about power and control it's about if I'm not in control then I'm not going to survive and if I'm not going to survive then I'm going to have to kick into what make what I know or I've trained myself to do to make sure that I will and so it is really a huge it's a hugely separate set of skills you know you have to not be able to take things personally you know and if you are if you've got high intersensitivity you know issues with people that's hard you know if a kid tells you I hate you you know f off this you know it calls you names you know if you've if you're kind of not used to if you're going to take that personally you've already lost before you began Mm. so it's kind of going I get this this is about you this is about where you come from this is about what works for you so however we do need to address that but we definitely don't address it when you're downstairs Mm. why because we are not listening you can't actually process words. I mean, if you think about the most traumatic thing you ever saw or was experienced, you're not processing language. You know, we say, you know, when something really stressful happens, we go into a time warp. Time, you know, seems to warp. Everything warps, and it's because that's the space that you're in. So I often say to foster parents, correcting behavior when a child is dysregulated, what we call dysregulated, or in the downstairs brain, or even an adult, correcting behavior when they're like that is like learning an algebra equation jumping out of an airplane. <laughs> yeah. Like you, it's just not going to go in. Yeah. Get well, I mean, on. the thing is, we all know that. It's like, yeah. you know, when, when, when you're in a, um, an argument with, with your spouse, you know, like trying to have a logical discussion <laughs> about how you're going to move forward, like you kind of need to deal with the feelings first and yeah. maybe just have the conversation later or, yeah. Absolutely. It's not just, yeah, it's it, it's instinctive, but w- when it comes to adults and children, we can often think, well, I'm the adult here, I yes. can fix this. Yes, and we forget. We forget that exact dynamic. It's a very good example of what it's like. And so it's realizing, because you may not be dragged into that argument, but you're just seeing the behavior, but recognizing it's it's not the time to fix it. Mm. Um. So, it, and with TBRI particularly, like I said, there's, you know, a number of evidence-based now trauma kind of based um, models to choose from but the thing that I love about TBRI is it's a practical toolbox and Mm. it gives you like okay all right this child is wobbling I reckon I could try playfully interjecting here like come on then let's just go for a quick jump on the tramp you know and we can probably stop what could become a landslide into something massive by just a quick playful interaction Mm. You might try that and you might get what we call a level two, which is like, no, I don't want to jump on the tramp with you. I don't like you. And you're like, okay, this child is now moving to level two. What do we do at level two? We calm our voices. We get down and we say, okay, you've got two choices. You can choose this or you can choose this. Both of them have to be positive. Can't be a win-lose. Mm. Children can't deal, hard, kids from hard places can't deal with a win-lose, so it's a win-win. Um, and then... Give them the time to process it. And 90% of the time, 
I choose this. I've shared the power with the child. I've given them time to process it. It's a win-win. I'm happy with either one. And so we then also circumvent a train wreck. If you think about that, a level three is full dysregulation. At that point, you abandon the request because you're not going to get it. It's an absolute waste of time. Your goal at a level three is to get the child back online. Right. And that could be offering them food, asking them if they need a hug, taking them for a walk. You know, like it could be anything that starts to calm the system back down. Mm. And then when it's all right, like you said before, then when it's the right time, you circle back to the request. And then you might offer two choices or you might. So you, you so the, the framework is easy for foster parents to work with and it gives them a whole little tools. They're mm. not thinking, oh, what do I do here? What do I do here? When we offer choices, we say, I mean, choices work, like I said, miraculously with kids from hard places. Mm. We think as adults we give kids lots of choices, but actually we don't. We're like, okay, it's time to go, grab your shoes, you know, get your bag, da-da-da. And to a child from a hard place, that's just the instruction after instruction, after, and it's it's ramping up my downstairs. Mm. So with our kiddies, it could be, okay, there's, we need to give them a lead in. There's, okay, we're going in five minutes. Do you want to grab your lunchbox first, or do you want to grab your jacket? Mm. Well, it's interesting because that's, that's practicing uh, – exercising certain amounts of power and control which are those executive functions right that's those sort of upstairs things that you're talking about exactly yeah so i mean when you when when someone comes to you and says hey look i'd I'd love to be a foster parent what are the things that you sort of what how do you check whether they're really ready it's quite it's quite a, a delicate process that the initial home visit is about it's kind of what do you know about it first and foremost? You know, like you might have a very, um, person might have a very um, different interpretation of what it is. So it's a bit of a reality check. Uh, what is, what's your motivation? You know, that's an important one. Um, what's your capacity? You know, what are what are some of the things that you've experienced and gone through and overcome, etc.? Because it's not for the faint hearted. Mm. But in saying that, we do get, you know, we do have newborn babies that still come into service and they do require very little apart from lots and lots and lots of normal things that we do mm. to facilitate attachment. So, but we don't, less and less now that we, the ministry and, and organisations like us move in the direction of mum and baby homes and that kind of thinking, less and less little ones are, are in referrals. So you really are looking for that resilience factor for adults mm. um because like you was you know saying before you have to be able to distance yourself from from behaviors and you'll get you know I, although some people say to me oh you know i'd like an under under five because they'll have less trauma i'm like oh boy <laughs> <laughs> i could give you a two-year-old that would give you a run for your money 24 <laughs> 7 and i can give you a 10 year old who's a dream so age is not actually mm the issue it's the issues are the issue yeah um and so that matching process is really important and it's like what is their family what's your family structure like where does this fit in Mm. you know it's it is a set of um it is a set of unique i guess qualities that Mm. make really good foster parents Mm. and how do you uh, how does it affect your children um it affects them yeah yeah my daughter wrote about that in her chapter of the book uh, my kids 
have grown up with, like I said, I mean, I've, we would have had over probably close to 60 children, you know, in through our home in, in the 18 years that we've caregived. They'll say some of them they loved <laughs> and some of them they were like, bye. <laughs> so it's a it's hard, mm. you know, sharing your parents. I mean, we already had the issues with one of our kiddies of navigating the, his, you know, brittle bone condition, which was his disability. He's great now, drives his car and gives me a run for my money as he's 17 and <laughs> up to all sorts. So, you know, he's, <laughs> he's great. He's fabulous. But, you know, it was a journey to get there. And um, it affects them. But I would say that when I hear my kids talking to other people or they find themselves in situations that most kids would actually be quite overwhelmed by, they navigate it really well. Mm. So it's, I think it's grown, I hope, you know, I hope one day they say that it's grown them into some pretty incredible human beings because mm. life has not revolved around them. Yeah. And how do you narrate that for them when they're comparing their lives to kids from families that don't have other kids coming through? Um, it, it has come up once or twice, more mostly in, in difficult times. Um, not a lot, though. Not as much as people would think. Definitely mm. not a lot. But it has come up a couple of times. And I kind of, this is, this is my kind of comical take on it. Everyone has issues, whether we like it or not. You know, we're all going to experience things that will give us issues that we, you know, we possibly should see some kind of counselling in our lifetime to process. And I think if for me, not in a hugely detrimental way, because none of my kids have been harmed or abused or, you know, suffered. Their needs haven't, they haven't had to go without anything or anything like that. They've mm. just had to share their home and their parents. And that's not always been easy. I figure if that's what they have to go to counselling for because other people's lives are better because they did that, I'm actually okay with that. Mm. Yeah. So that's my, um, I guess, <laughs> comical take on it, you know. Yeah. I've had to go to plenty of counselling for things that were far worse and from my own, you yeah. know, life. So I guess they think, well, but I, but I offer to pay for it. I did yeah, say yeah, yeah. that. I actually offered to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, like, if this is your thing, if this is your, I'm okay I'm with paying. that being your thing. I'm paying, yeah. <laughs> what gives you hope in this space? I, 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 I mean, there's plenty of great success stories of kids coming through care, the care system and doing amazing things and the skills that our young people who go through this kind of a journey if they can land and kind of have that final processing of seeing the the diamonds and all of the junk that they've had to deal with they are phenomenal human beings like they've had to grow and they, their, their people intuition, their um, survival skills, their, all those things are, are way advanced over our children that have not had to navigate this stuff. Mm. So when they harness that and they put that into the direction of doing good or being great, they excel. And we in New Zealand, we do have plenty of examples. Even Orang Tamariki's um, Facebook page and sites have lots of, good news stories that come out a lot. And these are real kids that have gone through this stuff and are doing incredible work. Mm. And so I think that gives me a lot of hope because I um, 
I mean, we are old enough now and have been doing it long enough to see good outcomes from that. Mm. Um, and I just look forward, I suppose, to 20 years from now, hopefully some of the kiddies that have come through our service are coming back to us and saying it made a difference. You know, it's not mm. everything, but mm. where we can make a positive difference. And we know, we know even in our own relationships, there's key people at key moments in our life that wasn't necessarily the volume of time that they spent with us. It was the quality of the time or the, or the fact that they saw us mm. that made a difference, helped us choose a career path or helped, you know, helped us become who we were. And so that's, um, I guess, I don't feel like we have to do the whole thing. We just have to do what part we're given to do really well. Mm. I often quote the, um, the line in the movie Honey, We Bought a Zoo, the one about courage. You know, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. Just literally 20 seconds of just embarrassing bravery. And I promise you, something great will come of it. It's kind of that, you know, you just got to do those bits and do them really well and really courageously and hopefully something good comes of it. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Yeah, um, really appreciate it. Yeah. If anyone has heard this conversation and is interested, how can mm. they get in touch with Immerse? How can they? Where, where, can, where can they find you? Yeah, perfect. Uh, our website is the best place to come through. So um, it's immerse i n m e r s e dot org dot nz, and you can um, put in a you know request there, or you can. It's very easy to navigate. <laughs> Marketing has done a wonderful job of making it easy to navigate. So yeah. That's, That's the best way to come. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. If you'd like to read Shelley's article, Home Again, and a whole bunch of other great New Zealand content, just go to flintandsteelmag.com where you can purchase this year's magazine and read the entire back catalogue of Flint and Steel articles from the last six years. You can also head along to maxim.org.nz to find out more about Maxim Institute, read our research and analysis, and sign up for our monthly forum email. Thanks for joining us for this month's podcast. From me and the rest of the team, Matewa, goodbye for now.